Hello, everybody. We're back with a second in-depth, or as in-depth as we can make it, discussion and look at the life and work of George Gurdjieff, who was a towering figure, the most towering figure of the 20th century that many people haven't heard of. And just to encapsulate a couple of the ideas that we put through in the last program, there was a great deal of insight and psychological awareness that Gurdjieff had in his working with other people in finding out what made them tick and those things that kept people effectively acting like machines and asleep to the awareness that their behavior was having on others or not having on others, not being able to help others out of a love of one's fellow man, out of a love of humanity. So Gurdjieff had a lot of thoughts on our state of humanity, on exactly what kept people at a particularly low level of functioning and awareness that they had. And I'd like to read this quote that harkens back to a show we did some months ago on Gustav Laban's The Crowd, uh, which was a look at how crowd behavior works and the types of very negative um, acts and, and uh, thinking that a herd-like mentality can produce in society, which is something that we discuss here on the show and think about quite a lot. So Gurdjieff had this to say, the crowd neither wants nor seeks knowledge, and the leaders of the crowd, in their own interests, try to strengthen its fear and dislike of everything new and unknown. The slavery in which mankind lives is based upon this fear. It is even difficult to imagine all the horror of this slavery. We do not understand what people are losing. But in order to understand the cause of this slavery, it is enough to see how people live, what constitutes the aim of their existence, the object of their desires, passions, and aspirations, of what they think, of what they talk, what they serve, and what they worship. Consider what the cultured humanity of our time spends money on, even leaving the war out, what commands the highest price, where the biggest crowds are. If we think for a moment about these questions, it becomes clear that humanity, as it is now, with the interests it lives by, cannot expect to have anything different from what it has. So last week we talked a little bit about his experiences leaving Russia, having just formed the nucleus of a school. He was surrounded by a number of pupils who were unable to learn in the environment of war-torn Russia in the 19-teens. And he was pressed with the urgent goal of having his school leave Russia and basically find a stable country in which to continue his work. There are stories of him explaining to his students the very dire need to pay attention to all that he was telling them to do out of a, out of a sheer 
kind of concern for their life. It was a life and death situation. So that quote comes of experience. This wasn't a, an armchair philosophy about how people live. This was a, uh, something that came of a life and death realization of what war is and, and what its constituents are. On the subject of war, he also says, let us take some event in the life of humanity. For instance, war. There is a war going on at the present moment. What does it signify? It signifies that several millions of sleeping people are trying to destroy several mil millions of other sleeping people. They would not do this, of course, if they were to wake up. Everything that takes place is owing to this sleep. And far from just being sleep, something that he realized in his uh, kind of historical understanding of war and of his direct experience of it was that there was a kind of pathological element to it as well. He would call it a revolutionary psychosis or a political psychosis or a national psychosis, something that took over the minds of people and made them even more asleep to the nature of their own whims than they might ordinarily. So when we look at the events of the current day, for instance, when we think about all of these far-left ideological perspectives on eating, on sexuality, on political correctness, on any number of different issues, we can take what Gurdjieff said at the time and find a very practical application to the psychosis that we find ourselves in now. We can look at things with his insight in mind. Well, on that subject, I think the what he says has a lot to say about the, the human condition, but now and at all times, because he says that people are, people are asleep. And just like in early Christianity, it's a universal statement. People are, people are asleep and they've always been asleep. People are at the whims of the forces around them. This showed in the, in a kind of mundane example in the opening quote from last show that I read from Beelzebub's tales about the you know, the cultured man that wakes up and any number of minor inconveniences totally change his mood and and he's very he's very vain and petty but has a high opinion of himself. But we are we are slaves to the things around us that that influence us in one way or another. And a prime example of that is politics and how people are caught up with political movements, revolutionary movements, and even just ordinary, everyday party politics, getting identified with a certain ideology or party and not, not doing so consciously. <clears throat> you see this in politics all the time. You see it today, especially if you follow American politics, but it's the same everywhere. It's the same all over the world, where people identify with their party and then defend all the bad things about their side and expose the, the expose the bad things about the other side and then vice versa. 
everyone everyone is subjective everyone is just as idiotic as everyone else and at the same time some people get uh, every side gets something right some of the time as well so you'll find the left getting some things right the right getting some things right everyone disagreeing over everything else and even those those things and you you don't have anyone that is actually um you know 100% right because everyone is in this same state of death you know sleep no one has none, none of these people no one has self-awareness self-knowledge no one has developed themselves to any any great degree it's everyone's pretty much at a level, level playing field of idiocy and you have one idiot calling out another idiot and that idiot calling out another idiot and it's just a whole bunch of idiots calling each other out and acting like total idiots that's an, that's kind of politics in a nutshell is a bunch of idiots doing idiotic things and especially and not even just idiotic things like Gurdjieff is talking about the the context for this is the is world war 1 and then the the russian revolution so a period of mass death reciprocal destruction as he put it put it <clears throat> mass death and just total hysteria um people turning on their family members their friends for just totally totally you know stupid reasons um you know you you get torture and murder and all the worst of humanity comes out in these periods and it's all people clumping together in these tribalistic groups and you see um where there's not active warfare going on in the planet right now you see these tensions and you see these conflicts propping up and these people forming themselves into camps and again each being right about some things and totally wrong about other things but e but everyone being totally certain of their own rightness their own self-righteousness and it's just a it's just part of humanity part of the human condition and what gurdjieff was presenting was the possibility to get out of that and by reading his work and by reading you know the works of any other number of people that have had any kind of insight into this you, they realize and they show that the way out isn't to come up with a better political system a better political party uh, a better way of forcing people to all be good decent citizens and to get along that's not the way it works you can't externally impose a a system that'll make everything great it's just not the way humanity works it's not the way human nature works the only way to make it work is for each person to change themselves individually because that's the only place that true change can come from otherwise it's all just external reactions one like billiard balls one one thing hitting another and then that will cause some friction and cause a reaction and on the on the worst scale it it takes the the form of total warfare so on that subject just uh, slightly related I, I want to read another excerpt from the Paris meetings 1943 where one of the one of the participants in one of these meetings asks Gurdjieff um a question about that re that relates to politics so this guy had just told Gurdjieff that um that he's noticed something about himself that he's working on changing and he's kind of frustrated with himself because he he can't do it they've just read a chapter in Gurdjieff's book Beelzebub's Tales on uh a figure in there called Ashiata Shiamash um who some people think like John Bennett thought was probably uh, a like a version of Zoroaster or Zarathustra. And so this is what the guy says. Well Gurdjieff asks him, "Well what is it do you want to get rid of?" 
The guy says, the belief that at the moment communism would be preferable to other solutions. The efforts I've made to detach myself up until now have only partially succeeded. My head no longer believes in it, but there is somewhere inside me where it remains. Certain reactions show me I'm not yet detached. So this guy's describing a process that he's been going through to, to get rid of his attachment to a political ideology. Intellectually, he knows it doesn't work, but there's still an emotional connection, an emotional attachment and an identification with this political ideology. So Gurdjieff responds kind of in a roundabout way um, before getting to the, to the actual subject himself. He says this. He tells the guy, You have many acquaintances, friends you have known for a long time. Perhaps you've noticed, among other things, that everyone has had a different education, has a different character and temperament. A question can never be approached in the way you think. Everyone manifests differently. You've noticed that someone who wishes to do good for everyone must have had a corresponding education. Only a person who has learned a discipline can receive this education. Without discipline, it is impossible to do anything. You can judge for yourself. Without authority, you will never do anything. You are weak. You need an authority, someone to direct you. And it is the same for all your friends. So he starts, Gurdjieff starts, by giving this picture of, of humanity, of human nature, about its variety and the, the necessity for what you need to actually develop. He says people are all different, they all need different things, they all need a different approach. And, uh, you know, the same question can never be approached the same way. Um, everyone manifests differently. And for, um, you know, some people have an education and they want to do good, others don't. But without discipline, you can't do anything. You, you, you yourself cannot do, dis do, do anything without discipline. And in order to, to gain discipline, you need an authority. This can be some kind of ideal you hold. This can be a, a teacher, someone to, to teach you discipline. This is what, this is kind of an overall picture of where humanity is. So then he goes on. I'm going to talk a little bit about politics with you. I know about communism. I too was a communist. There's no education, no authority in communism. They do not recognize it. Authority is not permitted. Everybody must be equal. If you've noticed this was impossible in your own life, then you'll understand that in communism it is just as impossible. If you understand that, the communist idea can die in you. It must die, if you know anything about Ashiata Shiamash. In communism, they choose the leaders, the directors, from the herd. Idiots who know nothing at all. They choose only people who are full of self-love and vanity. The system of Ashiata Shiamash is the opposite of all that. By comparison, other systems are nothing. Communism or monarchy, it is all the same. They choose some idiot with all those same flaws. You will understand what, I'm say what I am saying and why. One is, a great one is a great idiocy and the other too. It is the same shit in both cases. A collective existence is only possible through one system, that of Mr. Ashiata Shiamash. Right now, our only concern is the development of candidates to become future followers of Ashiata Shiamash. Later on, we will choose among them. Do you understand? So here, Gurdjieff is kind of talking in, uh, in his mythical, fantastical way that he sometimes did, especially in Beelzebub's tales. So he's talking about this system of Ashiata Shiamash, which is this you know mythical creation that Gurdjieff has invented, and saying, well, this is the only way to do it, and the, the only and so this system exists, but really that system is um, totally antithetical to any 
existing system we have. It, it is founded on, uh, on self-development and all these things that Gurdjieff is saying that are totally lacking in the world. So basically, the only system where idiots don't rule is a system where idiots don't rule, which is kind of like just um, truism. But, but uh, he's trying to make a point here. So he says, we're not yet followers of Ashiyat Ashiyamash. And only, in other words, we have to first become candidates before we can actually become um, become the people that would implement any kind of system like this. So what he's, what he's essentially saying is what I said before, is that the, the only change that we can do has to come from within personally. There is no system that can be imposed on others. People have to develop in order to actually create something for themselves. And that's you know difficult with 7 billion people on the planet. So he says, your monarchy, your communism, your surrealism, all have exactly the same quality, the same value. All four, five, ten, however many exist, it is the same thing, the same smell. It smells like a chicken's ass. The expression does exist. When you buy a chicken, you always sniff it in one place. Whether it's old or young, there is one place you sniff. Under the tail. That's the way you can tell if it's old or young. If it was killed five days, a week, or a month before. That is why you smell it there. All chickens smell the same in that place, but with different qualities. Old uh, old, one quality, young, another quality, but both are mixed with the smell of shit. It is the same with all your political parties. The smell is mixed with the smell of shit. So I think that's probably the most eloquent and perfect description of political parties that's ever been penned. Um, it's all just different varieties, different qualities of the same smell of shit. Um, whether it's Republican, Democrat, um, you know, socialist, communist, whatever the parties are in your country of choice, the country you live in, um, they're pretty much all shit. Um, and they can't be otherwise because everyone is in this state of sleep. Everyone is dead to some degree in the Christian sense. The, the, that, that is just the human condition. That's just the way people are. The only way to get out of that is for individuals themselves to lift themselves out of that and to, to help be lifted out of that. Um, through a form of education, through a discipline, and through a self-discipline. There's a, a two-pronged pro, or a two-sided process to that. It's kind of reciprocal. You need, on the one hand, you need others around you to, to pull you up to their level where they're slightly higher than you, and you need to be able to pull yourself up and to pull others up. It's this mutual process that, um, that really requires uh, a teacher. And that teacher can, can can take the form of a you know a single person or group, ideally a group where you get as many perspectives as possible, and until that happens, um, you're going to smell like shit. And th that was Gurdjieff's colorful way of putting it. Um, that was one of his favorite words, no matter what language he was talking in, just because it was so descriptive of the state of the state of deadness and me uh, mechanicalness and um, lack of will and lack of unity that that characterized humanity. I mean, the pettiness, the vanity, you know, the self-love, the arrogance, the selfishness, that all that for Gurdjieff was shit. And so for, for him um, and for us, the, like the, the idea is, and the practice is to be able to start seeing that for yourself, to start being dissatisfied with that level, to not look around and, and just be, just see how everything's rosy and everything's great. Um, you can see some things that are good, some things that are moving in the right direction, or some things that are that are actually um, you know worthwhile. But when it comes down to it, all of that is kind of pretty pretty low on the totem pole. We haven't really we haven't really um, accomplished that much because there is so much more potential. That's the thing for Gurdjieff is that when you think about 
when you have any idea of what the possible potential is for humanity and for even a single individual, then anything that we're, any level that we're at right now, any manifestation we have of our present capability pales in comparison. So relatively, it is shit compared to what it could be. So it's that revaluing, that revaluation of, of the present that opens up the, the possibility for this better future. You have to be dissatisfied with the present in order to, to progress. It doesn't mean that you have to be a total uh, cynic about everything and just be like reactively um, like judgmental and close-minded to everything around you and just being like a, you know, what are they called? Like a, um, what's the other word for like a party pooper? You know, someone who's just like a total downer and, and uh, totally negative about anything. That's not what he's saying either. Um, but to have an objective, an objective understanding of the relative value of things, um, there are certain things that are valuable that that, that you can find. But there, it's often just a, a hint of it, just a whisper of it that we see in in the world. But objectively, really, when you look at anything, particularly politics, it's all like you know, bottom of the barrel. Yeah, it's it's very much a, a reflection. Uh, the you know we get of of who we are but you know in, in many ways we end up getting the the leaders that i guess we deserve if you see us all as you know sleeping automatons then what what more could we possibly hope or or expect for um for our political leadership but i you you mentioned the uh understanding and gurdjieff has like a unique way of of um, a unique science of understanding, a unique science of, of being that I think really complements the efforts made by individuals like Jordan Peterson to try and map out a, um, an alternative to just uh, mechanistic scientific materialism, that a, a way of incorporating the scientific method uh, to the development of being and of man's you know, potential uh, for greater levels of being. And so I wanted to read a quote um, that uh, from Gurdjieff's uh, fragments, or it's from Ospensky's uh, Fragments of an Unknown Teaching in Search of the Miraculous. And this is what Gurdjieff said. There are two lines along which man's development proceeds, the line of knowledge and the line of being. In right evolution, the line of knowledge and the line of being develop simultaneously, parallel to and helping one another. But if the line of knowledge gets too far ahead of the line of being, or if the line of being gets ahead of the line of knowledge, man's development goes wrong, and sooner or later it must come to a standstill. I would say we're probably seeing the the, the consequences of something similar to that today. That's a, at least a, a hypothesis to consider. He goes on, people understand what knowledge means, and they understand the possibility of different levels of knowledge. They understand that knowledge may be lesser or greater, that is to say, of one quality or of another quality. But they do not understand this in relation to being. Being, for them, means simply existence, to which is opposed just non-existence. They do not understand that being or existence may be of very different levels and categories. Take, for instance, the being of a mineral and of a plant. It is a different being. The being of a plant and of an animal is again a different being. But the being of two people can differ from one another more than the being of a mineral and of an animal. 
This is exactly what people do not understand. And they do not understand that knowledge depends on being. Not only do they not understand this latter, but they definitely do not wish to understand it. And especially in Western culture, it is considered that a man may possess great knowledge. For example, he may be an able scientist, make discoveries, advance science, and at the same time, he may be, and has the right to be, a petty, egoistic, mean, envious, vain, naive, and absent-minded man. And yet, it is his being. If knowledge gets far ahead of being, it becomes theoretical and abstract and inapplicable to life, or actually harmful, because instead of serving life and helping people the better to struggle with the difficulties they meet, it begins to complicate man's life, brings new difficulties into it, new troubles and calamities which were not there before. The reason for this is that knowledge which is not in accordance with being cannot be large enough for or sufficiently suited to man's real needs. It will always be a knowledge of one thing together with ignorance of another thing, a knowledge of the detail without a knowledge of the whole, a knowledge of the form without a knowledge of the essence. Such preponderance of knowledge over being is observed in present-day culture. The idea of the value and importance of the level of being is completely forgotten, and it is forgotten that the level of knowledge is determined by the level of being. Actually, at a given level of being, the possibilities of knowledge are limited and finite. Within the limits of a given being, the quality of knowledge cannot be changed, and the accumulation of information of one and the same nature within already known limits alone is possible. Taken in itself, a man's being has many different sides. The most characteristic feature of a modern man is the absence of unity in him, and further, the absence in him of even traces of those properties which he most likes to ascribe to himself, that is, free will, a permanent eye, the ability to do, etc. It may surprise you if I say that the chief feature of a modern man's being, which explains everything else that is lacking in him, is sleep. And then he goes on to talk about the how you cannot have understanding without the balancing of knowledge and being together. That when you combine the two, when you are evolving, um, more or less in a, in a steady pace, that you are balancing the, the being side of you, the how you are doing things, how you are approaching life, whether or not you are, uh, you're lying to yourself, or if you're vain or silly or daydreaming or dissociating all the time, or whether you have a being that is devoted to something higher than you, a being that wishes for the betterment of, of those around you and that wishes to make life better, that this, that aspect of life that is completely forgotten, it's, it's you know, it's, it's people are starving for that knowledge. They, they, they starve for an, uh, a way of increasing that potential within them, the pen- potential to live at a higher level than they were the day before or the day before that. Um, and it's, and that's, you know, that, that hunger is reflected in the, you know, by the fact that some Canadian professor of psychology, uh, becomes a multimillionaire, uh, based on his prescriptions for how to live in life. And that was one of the big things that Gurdjieff provided to everyone that he met and all the lives that he touched was, um, not a science, a scientific, uh, an empty mecha- mechanistic system, but a system that was uh, that was broad and un- and based on the the like empirical 
what he could see in every individual student, what their needs were, what their, how they would best respond to a certain um, lesson, what, you know, how to phrase something so that they could be shocked out of, out of the state of sleep. Because at, like we've been discussing, um, you know, a lot of the, the problems that we have today are, are that people are just sleepwalking into these, um, into, into big problems and they're using their preconceived, you know, ideas about, well, I'm, I'm a liberal, so this is how I'm going to think. This is how I'm supposed to think. And I've been told that every conservative is evil. And on the other side of the camp, well, I'm a conservative and blah, blah, blah. I love my country and I love humanity. And I think liberals are, are evil. And then, you know, each side has, um, um, you know, the, the rank and file of, of both sides, uh, for the most part, uh, has some some desire for goodwill, I think. They have some goodwill, some kernel in there, um, but that it gets twisted and corrupted by a lack of being able to even possibly comprehend what the other side is saying, not even an effort, really, to understand what the other side is saying. And I think that comes right back to like what we were discussing, is the lack of being. We have so much knowledge, so much information, it's flooding. Every time you open up your phone, you have access to more goddamn information than has ever probably existed in the history of the human race. And yet, look, like he said, all it's doing is it's complicating people's lives. It's making life more difficult. You have 700 billion apps on your phone, one for each and every stupid little thing, and everyone out there is pushing to make some new gadget or tech so that they can capture another spot in the marketplace. And then meanwhile, you know, you've got, to you know, toddlers with their smartphones who have ADD and are developing, you know, psych psychiatric conditions um, because we have completely neglected the, you know, the very practical down-to-earth um, necessities of character development and of rooting our our knowledge and our you know our our desire to grow as people in a kind of a multifaceted system you know we don't really we don't really have that like you've pointed out before like Christianity has a similar kind of ethic you know a similar way of viewing life as you know people are sleeping and then for you know thousands of years or you know hundreds of years that that was sufficient for for people it was you know the kind of collective method that people needed even if they're not getting a gurdjieff in their house they they at least have some kind of a system that tells them this is how you behave and this is the you know the the way to grow as a human being towards Christ towards God towards the good towards the greatest and most benevolent potential that you can but we have we have lost that by the lure of the the more practical you know the results of science that um you know that that just seemed so much more appealing you know question everything abandon everything you know in, in many ways probably maybe for the better i don't know in some in some cases but uh we have we forgot that that's it's not a one-size-fits-all solution and people are still hungering for the other half of their entire you know psyche to be um to be cultivated mm -hmm. well you said a number of things there 
First, I just want to get back to the quote you read from In Search of the Miraculous about the difference between some people being even greater than the difference between a, a mineral and, a, and an animal, or, or, or yeah. I'm paraphrasing. That's one of those quotes that the first time I read it, uh, I was really quite taken aback by. Um, because you or we get inculcated with this idea that most people are more or less uh, equal or, or we don't really have an appreciation for the differences of human beings, of what they're capable of, of, of the levels of um, potential that some people have. Uh, versus others, or the degree to which um, uh, we can we can grow ourselves. Um, so to read that was uh, was pretty interesting to say the least. Um, but I'd like to get back to the the very kinds of um, things that Gurdjieff is is trying to impart, and that is that the he had a value system. Uh, that he was conveying through his writing and, and his teaching. And this value system said that consciousness and, and awareness and conscience were pretty much the, the, the alpha and the omega, the, the beginning and the end, and the place to, to start if you were to have any kinds of riches in this world, be it material or internal, uh, that it all starts with awareness. And one of the central ideas to this was that we forget ourselves. We fall into the state of confluence that permits us to forget that we're human beings first or that we have some sense of humanity. And so we, we become identified and, and hystericized and, and latch on to these ideas that, uh, that give us permission to and encourage us to to go out there, to, to throw ourselves into a pursuit or a, or a, a protest or, a, uh, or an idea or a job or a, or a form of dissociation that has little to nothing whatsoever to do with our capacity and potential to grow into something significant. And one of the, uh, one of the reasons for this, he says, is that all this and much else besides is merely a form of identification. Such considering is wholly based on requirements. A man inwardly requires that everyone should see what a remarkable man he is and that they should constantly give expression to their respect, esteem, and admiration for him, for his intellect, his beauty, his cleverness, his wit, his presence of mind, his originality, and all his other qualities. Requirements, in their turn, are based on a completely fantastic notion about themselves, such as very often occurs with people of very modest appearance. Various writers, actors, musicians, artists, and politicians, for instance, are almost without exception sick people. And what are they suffering from? First of all, from an extraordinary opinion of themselves. Then, from requirements. And then from considering, that is, being ready and prepared beforehand to take offense at the lack of understanding and lack of appreciation. And you think about all the thought leaders 
and people in society and culture who are uh, coming up with um, the new thing or the new idea uh, or the new media uh, or the the new look that uh, is based fundamentally on a very sick perception of of these individuals' selves and the world that they live in. And we, we, we rarely stop to examine that. I was watching a, a video the other day. I forget her name, but she's, um, she's a, a kind of a hip-hop performer with a flute. And she's rather obese, and she wears a thong. And um, it, it's one of the most grotesque uh, displays of exhibitionism uh, and idiocy I, I think I've seen recently. It just seems to escalate. So she's a very talented flutist, but she wears a thong and she, and she twerks the audience. And overnight she's become this bit of a, an entertaining, uh, entertainment sensation. And I was watching an analysis of, of her, and um, one, of the, uh, one of the media people was saying, you know, why are we... She was rightfully questioning this person's uh, position in, in, in the minds and, and the awareness of the public. You know, this person is fundamentally unhealthy. And, and what she was doing was crude and, and grotesque, basically. And uh, I was like, wonderful. Someone is actually, you know, looking at popular culture with a somewhat healthy and critical eye uh, to the extent that she was able to without being shut down by her co-host or whoever she was speaking with. Um, so that was just a, a recent kind of example of, of how... You know, because what this woman, what this grotesque flutist is going to say in the paper and, and her opinion, uh, if she's a, you know, a far lefty, you know, if she's talking about diversity or any one of these other things that she might be asked to comment on, is just going to naturally feed into that whole idea and, and I, I think be kind of a, a negative influence on those who are paying attention to her. So, uh, self-remembering as a way of as a way of being shocked into one's own awareness of oneself um i don't recall if a few minutes ago i mentioned it but this is one of his crucial ideas and that is that if we're going to if we're going to have any kind of positive effect at all on on the people around us on ourselves on uh the world at large, uh, we have to remember some, we have to remember ourselves. We have to remember those very basic and all important uh, values that we've decided to value, those responsibilities that we've decided to take on and not get distracted and, and pushed about by all of these grotesque, flutist twerking, you know, people in the media who might happen to say something that would feed into an idea that would that would put us uh, that would take us away from what really matters? Um, on the subject of self remembering, like you said, it's one of his one of Gurdjieff's central ideas, and it's uh, like it's a new term. It's not a common term. It was something that he came up with, um, you know, in Russian originally. And so, when you're first reading, it's kind of hard to get an idea of what exactly he means by it. <laughs> And probably just in the most basic sense, um, 
it just means kind of it, kind of what you would think it means. If someone were to say to yourself, oh, you know, oh, Corey, you forgot yourself right there. It's like, or Corey, you're like, remember yourself. Um, it means, like, so that would have the, the kind of the context or the connotation of, okay, well, Corey's done something that um, it's out of character. He's forgotten himself. He's acted in a way unbecoming to him. Um, something like that. So it can mean to basically to come to yourself, to come back to yourself in a sense. But more in depth, it you have to get into more of Gurdjieff's anthropology, like his view of what the what the human being actually is. So he would divide the <clears throat> we had various divisions of of the human kind of personality or being, and the primary the primary one, the one that's probably most important at the at the basic level, is the the tripartite division of of man, the the three parts that make up uh, a person. Uh, Corey, you mentioned them earlier, like the moving center, the emotional center, and the intellectual center. So this would be our kind of um, physical and instinctive um, body. So these are the, this is the the part of us, the the physical part that moves and does things, and that all the instinctive processes that are going on in us, our digestion, you know, our muscle movements, our uh, our cellular processes, our endocrine system, like all of the kind of automatic, basic functioning of the body, as well as all of the just the physical movements that we do. And then the in, the emotional part, which is the the valuing, the the, the valuing and emotional um, part of being. So the the emotional reactions that you have, the the likes and dislikes, the the pleasant and unpleasant uh, reactions to to various things, whether ideas, sensations, experiences. Um, oh well, another important part of the of the moving center is sensation. It's like the so the tactile, you know, sensations that we have in our body. The tingling of our skin, the pressure, heat, cold, that's all associated with the, the physical moving center. And then third, the intellectual center, what we think and direct, uh, what we think with and the, 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 the thoughts that we think and the, the directions that we give to our body. Um, so that would be the, the source of like an incipient will. That's the intellect that will, that can at least direct the body to do a certain thing. So for self-remembering, um, self-remembering would be to basically come back to ourself as uh, as an as the I, as in you know I am the I and I am that experiences all those things and experiences them from some kind of hidden place. Because what often happens is that we become identified with any one of our functions. We lose ourselves in the things that we do and the reactions that we have and the thoughts that we think you can think about like obsessional thoughts when you're when your your mind is just running and you have no control over it or when you get absorbed into a certain activity um, um it could be a physical activity or absorbed with an emotion that uh, that comes uh, for, that's inspired and like brought and brought on as a reaction to something outside of us or just the associative processes you know we think of one thing that leads us to think of another thing we get a feeling we get a sensation the the memory of a sensation we this is that vision of man as constantly buffeted about by the the different forces in inside and outside of ourselves to self-remember would be to step outside of that reactivity and that mechanical um mechanical reactive nature that we often have and that we will habitually have because we're constantly our attention is constantly um, um, diverted and distracted from one thing to another and we have very little control over that just like the man in the story in, in the beginning of last week's show whose attention is 
attention and functioning are constantly diverted by any any little accident that happens in the outside world. Um, you know, dropping his pen or, you know, slipping on a rug or whatever. It's the things outside of our control that then end up controlling us. So self-remembering is the is essentially separating, uh, having a separation between the I, like the you, the, the observer within yourself, and the functioning of your your body, of your mechanical machine, the thing that we call the body, the thing that we inhabit. And to have that separation as, so it's almost, um, it's almost as if to, to constantly have the, the awareness of the, of, of the three, the three centers in your body, the three things happening at all times and not to be identified with any of the things going on there. So when I, so when I'm talking here, it would be to have the, the constant awareness, uh, not only the constant talking, but the constant awareness of myself talking. Um, so there's a split awareness that's directed both to, to myself and to the external world and not to be completely, um, completely identified with the, the thing I'm doing or that's happening in me at any moment. So it's that, it's that separation between the, what Gurdjieff would call I and it, it being the, the, the machine, the, the body, the things going on in the body, the automatic processes, the automatic associations going th through my mind, the automatic feelings that are coming up through the, through those associations and through the interactions that I'm having with, uh, with the world around me and the people in that world and the, uh, the sensations and the movements of of my body. So self-remembering is this central aspect of of an inner state of self-awareness that and the, uh, of self-awareness. And another aspect of the the reason it's uses the word remember is because um, anytime your attention is diverted, you have forgotten. Part of you has forgotten. You know what was going on in the previous. The previous moment so we're constantly forgetting ourselves and uh, so one eye it's, it's it's like we have all of these different eyes like almost like a um a low-key version of multiple personality disorder where one one aspect of ourselves is in control at any given moment and then another aspect comes and this one goes so this one oh for, forgets itself and then this kind of gains superiority and then we forget ourselves but there's no constant running throughout that stream of of different things in control at any given moment. Self-remembering would be ideally the state of a single thread of consciousness running through running through all of those so that we never lose we never lose that stream, never lose never lose that thread. But that's pretty much impossible. It's pretty it's impossible for um for anyone that's in this state of just waking sleep. It is something that has to be worked at and worked towards. Um, through a discipline, through practice. And so that's where Gurdjieff um, had all kinds of practical exercises and tasks and things to do throughout the day to, in order to, to learn to, to keep that thread of awareness throughout the day because we, we, we do forget ourselves habitually. So it's the effort put in to, to try to attempt to keep that thread of awareness, of self-awareness through everything. In a sense, you could kind of you could kind of compare it to a kind of um, um, like what's the name of that meditation practice? But well, constantly being aware. There, there's a word for it. It's like an Eastern method, but um, constantly being aware of yourself in any given moment, no matter what you're doing, so that you're never distracted. Because because I mean, uh, I experience it every day. People, everyone experiences it every day, where something happens out of the blue, 
and you're auto now now you're no longer doing it or thinking or feeling what you were before now your attention is directed to something else and oftentimes you can just completely forget what you were doing in the previous moment mm-hmm. but the what Gurdjieff presents is the potential that there's that there is this potential that you can stay one and the same whole being whole consciousness throughout all of the you know the the shipwrecks of of life that come at you, and the minor ones and the big ones. Is that there, there's that there can be that thread of unity in among the yeah, and built out of the diversity that it, that is our our inner self. So that is that would kind of be. Um, I think that's kind of Gurdjieff's psychology in a nutshell. Is is to is with the goal. It has the goal of of creating within oneself that that inner strength and inner unity and the inner will that is very akin to like the stoic sage who is who is not moved by the the things that uh that that shouldn't move him um that that has that solid self that is that is consistent through through different um through all different um problems and things in life that has like an inner equanimity um to to the things in life and this leads me to what I think might be our last, uh, yeah, our last segment of this show, which is Gurdjieff's legacy and you know what he really left the world, um, because we've 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 made use of one of his legacies, which is the accounts written about him by the people that knew him. So in search of the miraculous, being the one you know at the top of most people's lists, and there's there's a couple hundred books. You know, maybe, maybe two or three hundred books, something like that, of uh, of books that have been written about Gurdjieff. Um, a smaller section of those written by people who actually knew him and who have given accounts of their life with him, little anecdotes, things here and there. We've got histories. Um, that isn't directly his legacy, but it's the you know the legacy of the memory that he left behind um, in the people that knew him. But his direct output um, can be found in pretty much three four areas of course there are his books that he that he wrote you know i we i read from one of them last week his kind of massive tome uh beelzebub's tales to his grandson which is um you know for those who haven't read it it is uh, a huge struggle to read because it's often uh it's often impossible to to understand what he's talking about so i mean take that take that as a warning um which was followed by two other books. Uh, let's see, Elon's got them here. Meetings with Remarkable Men, the second one, and Life is Real Only Then When I Am. Much more accessible. Yeah, much more accessible, those ones. Um, but and that's one of the things about Gurdjieff is that he he was deliberately obscure and de- deliberately difficult, often perhaps to the extent where it was where he was impossible. Um, possibly one of his flaws is that he tri- that he made it so hard, so difficult, such an effort to understand him and to put the pieces together that, um, well, that oftentimes it's often too hard to put the pieces together. Um, not that there isn't anything good to come out of at least making the attempt and coming to some uh, understanding for oneself, but that's uh, another story. That was that was one of his outputs that he did that he devoted himself for like the last twenty. 23, 24 years of his life was was these writings and using these writings. He also composed music. Um, um, he, yeah, with with one of his pupils, Thomas de Hartman, who was a famous at the time Russian composer, Ukrainian Russian. Um, 
they composed uh, a set of like t- more than 250, I think, up to 300 solo piano pieces based on melodies that Gurdjieff had heard or just in the style of the, the music of his childhood and the, the various areas that he'd visited over, the, over his travels. And so you can find recordings of those. Um, they were the first recording, the first public recording that I'm aware of was in the 70s uh, by um, the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett, uh, Sacred Hymns. Um, so yeah, for something like twenty something years after he died, that was that was the first time that anyone in the public could hear Gurdjieff's actual music. And then in the last years of Gurdjieff's life, he would play his little harmonium um, every evening. And the in the last year of his life, year and a half maybe, one of his students made wire recordings of some of those performances. So those are actually accessible too. You can hear actually you can hear Gurdjieff playing the harmonium. And then his third output was his choreographies, the, the dances or movements as they came to be called. Um, again, very, just like everything with Gurdjieff, very uh, unique. Just like no one writes like Gurdjieff or he didn't write like anyone else. Um, same with these movements is that they, like, he had his own style. And the purpose of these movements was to, first of all, they had to be difficult and they had to be a struggle and there had to be certain inner processes going on with the, with the movements themselves. And they were just like with everything else, um, in his mind, uh, a tool for um, a tool for gaining new insights about oneself. Um, because one of the one of his theoretical ideas was that in a new posture, in a different posture, you get a new impression, you get a new a new sensation, uh, something you you create the opening for something uh, something new to come in um, when you get out outside of your habitual postures and habitual movements. So these were kind of his three cultural outputs and. It seems like, just like in his theory, they were geared, that, well, they were compatible with his theory. So you had the books, which were primarily like an intellectual thing. You had the music, which touched the emotions, that, that worked on the emotions. And then you had the movements, which were a physical thing. So for all of the, these periods of his life, he was focused on, um, on working with all three aspects of the, the, of the human being. And that is... That is exemplified in these outputs that he that he's left behind and then the fourth one um, is the one that's probably the most interesting and that is the actual practical exercises that he gave for putting all of this into pra- into practice and unfortunately that has been kept secret for the most part by by Gurdjieff's pupils by the the Gurdjieff foundations that uh, that uh, that were created after his death so Gurdjieff actually gave practical exercises and like contemplative practices to to put these things into practice to to actually um make them work in real life and except for a couple publications here and there like a couple of the exercises were included in life is real which was published in the 70s it's been kept totally secret to the point where nowadays according to some insiders that the gurdjieff groups have forgotten a lot of the exercises that gurdjieff originally gave so this led um, a student of one of Gurdjieff's students, Joseph Aziz, um, who's a Maronite priest, to publish a book just, um, well, it just became available in the last month or so. Um, it's called uh, Gurdjieff Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises. And that's where he collects all of the, all of the published information and, the, and what he learned from, from George Ady, his teacher, um, about the Gurdjieff exercises. So that's really the first time that this stuff has been available that's been made public because it's been so tightly guarded. Um, maybe just as a, as a final comment before we wrap up, 
um, I want to talk just very briefly about this idea of secrecy because Gurdjieff had all these ideas, all these practices, and um, and you can understand in like any kind of esoteric group that you can understand the mentality of of keeping things secret, and because there's there's even a sense of of um, you know superiority that gets that that you can understand people in this situation would come to associate themselves with like, Oh, well we're part of this inner circle and we know we've got the secret and we don't want to just share it with anyone. So that's essentially what happened. They didn't share the secrets, the, you know, the family jewels, but it got to the point where like, like I said, apparently a lot of these things have now been forgotten because they've been kept so secret that they, you know, they haven't been passed on. So you have these Gurdjieff exercises, many that have been lost to time because they were never recorded and never shared. They were kept secret. And you see, you know, you can you can imagine how this happened. You know, one person says, oh, you know, these people aren't ready yet. Um, I'm not going to share them this exercise. And then no one ends up becoming ready. And no, the, the exercise never gets shared. That person dies and no, then no one knows it. Um, whereas um, Gurdjieff actually seemed like he was much more open about sharing things. He was much more open, like with the movements, for instance. He, he staged public performances after Gurdjieff died. Like until a couple of years ago, a few years ago, there were only one or two public performances of, of Gurdjieff's movements. Um, they were kept, and even then they were like, you know, only member, the invitations were limited and it's not like there, there was a big, um, a big public uh, announcement about it. It was still pretty limited. And even with the movements, it's at the point where, um, again, as one, one student of the modern Gurdjieff work learned, he, he was being taught movements by a student of Gurdjieff and only years later realized that they weren't actually teaching the entire movements. They were only teaching fragments and that they never actually taught the full movements so that the Gurdjieff groups themselves don't even, a lot of the, the members, first of all, aren't even aware that they don't know Gurdjieff's complete choreographies, um, but none of them know the complete choreographies. They've forgotten them. So luckily there's a guy, Wim Van Dulleman, um, who wrote a book that came out a couple of years ago in, uh, in 2018, which is the first book you know, specifically devoted to the movements. And he's done a ton of research and managed to get choreographies from here and there, um, you know, written descriptions of what a lot of these were. He's found groups that have kind of like um, preserved things from, from when they were first taught and kind of worked on them in isolation over the years. But whatever you think of... Um, you know, of, of the value of his movements or, or exercises or whatever, it's still, I think, you know, a great sin that they've been so neglected and not preserved with any, with what to me seems with any degree of respect that they deserve. Um, just as a cultural output, if, if the same thing had happened with any of like the, any of the great artists of, of the, you know, of, of history, people would be appalled. And, um, why not at least approach, um, you know, Gurdjieff's creations with the same kind of respect. And that it happens, it's, it's like on, a, on every level, even Gurdjieff's writings. Um, now that manuscripts are available for, um, for Life is Real, um, you find out that certain things have changed. There are manuscripts available for meetings with remarkable men where you see things have been reworded to make it more accessible. Um, they even did an entire trans, new translation, which wasn't really a new translation of Beelzebub's Tales. Well, they tried to pass it off as a new translation. Again, changing the meanings here and there apparently totally with good intentions they just wanted to make it easier to understand but screwed every screwed things up in the process um even the book this book which i you know really like paris meetings um in the in the first page in the editor's note it says that um previously only certain a certain number of these had been available and they're available in this book transcripts of gurdjieff's meetings 41 to 46 but they say that these were found in the papers the majority of these were 
of these were found in the papers of Salida Solano, who'd, who'd kept them. So she said, uh, or they say in the, in the note here, differing versions and other translations of some of the original notes exist. For instance, the papers of Salida Solano, which include a record of some of the Paris meetings were deposited in the Library of Congress in 1975. Solano, who was not in Paris during the period of these meetings, worked from an already existing English translation that she edited and abbreviated. And uh, that's probably seems to be true. It seems like there is edit editing. There seems to be some bad translations going on here. But when you compare this one with this one, you find out, well, well, these guys did the same thing. They abbreviated things. They cut out certain sections of the, the overlap between the meetings because you know, this is about 100 pages of 1943 meetings. This is about 350 pages. Um, they cut out things, some things for seemingly no reason. It's hard to understand why they cut them out. Other things because Gurdjieff said some controversial things that might offend people today. Um, but so sanitizing his image. And they've done, a, they've done a lot of things like that. So on the one hand, it's great that we've got all this stuff that's coming out. On, another hand, on the other hand, there's kind of like no transparency and no, um, um, no real reasons given for why, and why they've treated Gurdjieff's legacy in this way. And no acknowledgement that they've done it. They're not open about it. So that's just kind of a, a personal pet peeve of mine that, that uh, you know, I just can't believe how, how the people who have, put, like, who have followed his work and who have kind of become the, the cultural, like, inheritors of that work and whose responsibility it is to, to present that now to someone, hopefully the public, um, how they seem to have made some very poor decisions over the years. Um, I think that's just unfortunate. But luckily... Not only is there like an academic resurgence in actually studying Gurdjieff, there are people coming forward in each of these areas and trying to put the pieces back together, which I think is at least um, at least a good uh, a good thing for um, just history and for the the preservation of the legacy of uh, George Gurdjieff. So I think well, with that I, said, yeah, I would just add one thing to all of this, and and that is that uh, a central idea to his teachings was to put someone on the step behind you. Now, another one of his sayings is that uh, to to know a lot of things, to have a lot of knowledge, um, actually, you might only need a little knowledge. But in order to have that little bit of knowledge, you actually need quite a lot of knowledge, uh, which sounds paradoxical, but uh, makes sense on a certain level. But anyway, the point is this, I think, and and that is that if you get anything out of this, if you do decide to uh, read any of the, uh, the the writings or watch any of the videos, and we'll be posting a few links to the video uh, to this week's show, um, even if you're even if you never impart uh, his teachings per se, if if any of this can be made real to you, uh, or if it can affirm any of the what you believe to be your your highest goals or, or aspirations as a human being, uh, and if those aspirations can be translated into doing some good, some good um, for someone else, then I think that in some way we'll be able to pay the debt that we that we owe in 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 some measure to uh, to the world of knowledge, to all the work and the struggle and the pain that Gurdjieff uh, undertook in order to, to bring his teachings to, uh, to the world. Uh, I hope that makes some sense. We hope you enjoyed the show today. 
And uh, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>